Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily with me, Nina Sheikh. As regular listeners know, we are increasingly concerned with what seems like a global assault on the rule of law. Not only here in the UK, where the government seems committed to breaking law in very specific and limited ways, but also in the United States, where the president seems intent on perpetuating myths of electoral fraud long before the event itself. Meanwhile, like with all other aspects of life, COVID is playing havoc with our criminal justice system. Luckily, my guest today can help us make sense of all of this. Today, it is my pleasure to introduce Joanna Hardy. Young, fiery, and dynamic, Joanna is a criminal barrister and a highly skilled advocate, especially for young and vulnerable clients. Her CV reads like that of a character in a John Grisham novel. She's handled allegations of murder, historic sexual offending, and serious violence, including gang-related incidents and stabbings. Joanna is listed in the Evening Standards Progress 1000, a list of the most influential people in London. And she is not what you may imagine when you think of a typical barrister. Joanna, I was immediately fascinated by your profile and your work when I first came to know you. And as I mentioned, you're not the typical candidate for this, type <laughs> for this line of work. So how did you get into it? Uh, well, good morning, Nina. Thanks for having me. And thanks for such a generous uh, introduction. And it, when I listen to that introduction, it doesn't sound like me, even though I have done all of those things. <laughs> um, so when people hear about fancy words like barristers and the rule of law, I think the public have an image in their head of quite posh, quite old, quite white men. Um, and I'm none of those things. Um, I, I'm white, but I'm, I'm not male. I'm not posh. I come from a background which is deemed to be not traditional at the bar as a barrister, but very traditional for, for most of your listeners. Um, I grew up uh, in a really normal background. I was the first generation in my family to even go to a university, let alone join one of the most established professions that we have. I fell into it by accident, really. We had work experience at school and all of the other kids were doing um, what we all thought were fun things at the time, all different little jobs around the village where I lived. And my dad was uh, the local police officer and he had spent his days in the criminal courts um, and had made some pals, basically, with some of the barristers. And one of those barristers had become a judge at our local court. And I was able to go in my school uniform. Um, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know why I didn't buy a suit. I wore my school uniform and sat on the bench and watched these criminal trials with these. And I must say they were white, posh, old men um, doing their business. And I thought, I fancy a bit of that. I think I could be quite good at that. I think it's um, a wonderful way to spend a life. Uh, and so I scraped and scrapped my way in. Um, and here I am. So it worked out, but it, it, it wasn't straightforward um, and it wasn't necessarily easy. Well, I, I think it's 
it's really an amazing story and testament to you. And I think that, you know, coinciding with the summer of kind of Black Lives Matter and numerous tales of systemic bias, only this week, the Black barrister Alexandra Wilson also talked about how she's repeatedly assumed to be a defendant. You also are not the typical kind of barrister. Do you hold out any hope that, you know, diversity is going to become more of an urgent issue in the criminal justice system? Yeah, we, we've been hoping that for a while. Um, and Alexandra is a, a very good friend of mine. The difficulty we have is that change is slow, mm. but it is there. Uh, a lot of us that have come into this profession from different backgrounds, and in fairness, those from more traditional backgrounds in inverted commas, we work quite hard to A, demystify the profession. So anyone that's been anywhere near my Twitter will see me tweeting in normal language, sometimes what I hope is funny language about the job and demystifying the profession, but also to open up access to the profession. And Alexandra does an awful lot of work in that regard. Um, and I do a lot of work too. I, I volunteer with organisations that work um, in terms of social mobility. We work with schools because I think planting the seed quite early in the minds of kids that this is not a job for people who aren't like you. There are people in this profession that reflect you and who look like you, who sound like you, who have your same values and your same backgrounds. And we, we are working quite hard. Um, and in fairness to them, the powers that be, the, the Bar Council, uh, the judiciary, uh, everyone is working as hard as they can. But as we've seen in other sectors, uh, change simply can be slow. I, it's, I'm going to move now, I think, to a little bit of a discussion about COVID, because it's difficult to think about any part of life and society that hasn't been disrupted by this crisis. Yeah. So too for our criminal justice system. And perhaps you could help shed some light on that, Joanna. If you consider what was happening before COVID and you were explaining to a layman exactly where the British criminal justice system was, what would you say? So whereas most sectors, I think, have seen COVID as the threshold of disaster in their particular mm -hmm. sector, uh, the criminal justice system reached its threshold of disaster a long time ago. And mm -hmm. Corona for us has been a spotlight rather than a dam breaking. Uh, before COVID, so at Christmas, before we'd really even heard the word COVID, we had uh, over 37,000 cases waiting to be tried in our Crown Courts. Now that's 37,000 witnesses, complainants, defendants, some of whom may be found not guilty, people in prison waiting for their trial. Um, it's a plethora of people behind each statistic. Uh, and that was the result of underfunding. The criminal justice system is not a popular system held up by successive governments when seeking election, because we're not a popular group of people, nor a popular sector to be putting on the front page as funding particularly well. And because of that, they cut courtrooms, they sold them all off. Uh, anyone who's been for a cocktail in any kind of building called the courthouse uh, probably is actually having a pina colada in a building that we could do with using for actual court cases. But we sold them all off. Uh, see also luxury apartment buildings called the courthouse. So we lost a lot of our capacity. Um, we were on our knees. We had a backlog and we weren't ready for even the slightest disruption. And yet the disruption we got was Corona. Um, and so the system wasn't able to withstand it. And we're we're crawling around now um, in just like the scene of a disaster movie. It really is chaos. Well, successive governments have been attacked for making basic, and you, you already touched upon this, but for making basic justice provision harder to get. And it seems the poorer you are, the less likely you are to get justice. 
I wonder if you have any thoughts on that and if you can give us a primer on to, as to why and how that's coming about and how you see that developing going forward. Legal aid will be offered to anyone that qualifies for it and there's various uh, restrictions on people who qualify for legal aid where they get a free lawyer, uh, another set of restrictions where people will get a lawyer to which they have to make contributions and a whole other strata of people who will pay and have the ability to pay privately for their lawyers and I refer any to the criminal courts. In my view, and this is an honestly held view, the lawyers who undertake legal aid work are the same lawyers who undertake privately paid work. And the job we do is the same. My legally aid clients get the same service from me as my clients who are multimillionaires. So there, there is no difference in terms of the quality of, of legal advice that you get, the quality of representation that you get um, when you're instructing a professional, essentially, because we ha- we're held to such high standards anyway that there really is no um, you can't really go below a certain uh, floor um, or above a certain ceiling. But the restrictions on legal aid are such that we are seeing rejections of legal aid applications for certain offences. Sometimes I've seen some examples recently from some solicitors on Twitter rejecting legal aid in cases where kids, you know, youths are going to get criminal records. And you think, you know, we know what happens to those kids who get an early criminal record mm-hmm. and having a lawyer at an early stage would assist them. The rates that legal aid lawyers are paid are just so low. And I mean, another misconception is that we're all quite rich and (laughs) that our cousins at the commercial bar and at the tax bar who are earning millions of pounds are the same as us. Um, We send junior barristers out to the magistrate's court, Nina, and they will conduct a hearing that might require three hours preparation, two hours travel at the entire hearing where someone might go to prison, which I think is, is quite a serious responsibility to be on a professional's shoulders. Um, and they'll get paid less than £100. Um, and from that, they'll have to pay wow. a percentage to chambers. They'll be taxed. You know, we're talking about, um, at the very beginning, very, very modest rates for our most junior practitioners. Yet, correspondingly, the responsibility on their shoulders is so high. And one thing that's always worth remembering when we see uh, the trashing of legal aid in newspapers, and we do, mm-hmm. we see, you know, criminal awarded £60,000 in legal aid. And what they don't tell you is that that £60,000 covers a solicitor. It covers a barrister, maybe two barristers if it's a serious case. It might cover an expert witness. For example, if there's DNA evidence or fingerprint evidence, there might be an expert involved. And it's usually inclusive of that, which goes back to the Treasury anyway. It's worth remembering that those barristers and solicitors who are demonised for having the audacity to be paid to do this job, we often also prosecute. And those same outlets and those same commentators that criticise those who defend don't realise that all of the skills that I pick up when I defend people, I also deploy when I prosecute on behalf of the state um, and on behalf of citizens when they're wronged. If people don't want a healthy and thriving defence bar, um, then they're not really going to have a healthy and thriving prosecution bar. Um, And you can bet your bottom dollar that they quite like those. You kind of touched upon how even before the crisis, you know, the entire profession or the justice system was already on its knees. And you've said that, you know, COVID has kind of even made the situation worse. If you could pinpoint, you know, several areas where things, shortcomings have been exposed, um, what, what would you say those were? So the main shortcoming that's really been exposed by coronavirus in our court systems is just how out of date we are with technology. Mm -hmm. 
uh, we, you know, I remember doing right at the beginning, we had to improvise with Skype. Um, and so you had people, um, and I love them all to pieces. I really do. But you had some quite seasoned members of my profession who've been around for some, you know, years slash decades. Suddenly their nostrils filling my laptop screen in, in my kitchen um, as they try and uh, get a member of their family to help them turn their microphone on. Um, so it was just quite a bizarre experience where the majesty of the law, you know, you imagine it to be this very somber very regal experience of appearing in court was reduced to you know someone's nostrils on a screen we had all sorts of things you know people that couldn't turn their microphones off and so it, it, for a little while it was um, a bit like beginners internet 101 whereas you feel like other sectors have been doing video calls for a while uh, but we've got the hang of it and we've helped everyone along uh, and we've now got a dedicated platform which we're all using it's called CVP I think it sounds a bit like a disease we all keep saying oh, is it it's CVP. It sounds really alarming. Like you might need some antibiotics. Um, but CVP is what it is. And it enables us to link up with the prisons. But Nina, the problem we've got is this. We've got thousands of lawyers with laptops with CVP on it. But the people we need to speak to who are in prison, they have very few screens. Um, and so we can't actually access anybody. So whilst we've nailed the tech, we haven't quite nailed the manpower the other end. The other thing I think it's really shone a spotlight on is our lack of creativity. The idea that the only place in the world that we could possibly hold a trial were our courtrooms um, mm -hmm. has taken a good few months to be shaken off. And they've just announced an absolutely spectacular Nightingale Court in the mm -hmm. Lowry Theatre in Manchester. Um, and so the barristers are going to be on the stage um, and the jurors are going to be spread out. And it's just a really creative and sensible use of time, of money, and it helps the hospitality industry and also an entertainment industry who are obviously lacking in funds, and it means we can hear some cases. But that shouldn't have been announced in September when we stopped doing jury trials in March. Well, now that the kind of um, cogs seem to be almost creaking into action, do you think that, you know, these things need to happen anyway and now there's going to be a linear path forward? Or do you think that once things go back to normal, quote unquote, whenever that may be, we're going to just uh, get rid of kind of the, the the technology and the creativity, the new ideas that we're starting to see creeping in? I really hope that we embrace it. I, I can see why there may be a natural magnetic tendency to revert to normal in inverted commas. But honestly, as a, as a young-ish advocate, I hope I can still call myself that, it's been transformative because for me, you know, I'd tell my friends who work in all these fancy slick glass buildings in the city that mm -hmm. I'd get on a train and travel for four hours to tell a judge something for 12 minutes wow. and then get back on the train for four hours. Can you imagine it's, how much more productive you would be if you honestly, didn't? Honestly, it's life changing, you know, and I just think I really hope we'll embrace it. And some courts are better than others. Um, some courts have really, really taken it to heart. And they have just transformed their lives and their practitioners' lives. Um, other courts, you get the impression that they're entertaining this, um, but they'd really rather we all came back in our dusty old wigs and gowns in our dusty old rooms and carried on as we were. I think one of the really interesting things is how far do we take it? I mean, it's all well and good me appearing by a video link for a quick hearing where I'm telling the judge that we're waiting for something or I'm telling the judge we need more time. 
should I appear by video link when someone's being sentenced, for example, or mm -hmm. should I be there in person to represent that person with my advocacy skills? And then there's the thorny issue of jury trials. They tried to do justice. The charity um, did a, a fantastic experiment um, of an online jury trial. So 12 jurors on the screen, the witnesses on the screen, the defendant on the screen, the judge on the screen did a jury trial as an experiment um, in that respect. Personally speaking, I draw the line at that. I, I like to think that our juries should see, feel exhibit, to look at exhibits and feel what's in the room um, if we're deciding the guilt or innocence of someone. So Nina, it might be not how much we revert to normal, but where we draw the line moving forward. So it's a really interesting balance. I'd be really interested to see um, where we end up. What do you, I mean, like I said in the introduction, your your CV reads like something out of a, you know, the character of a John Grisham. <laughs> what do you think are the specific crisis areas in the system? Is it basic criminal prosecution? Is it more complex cases or is it violent crime? Do you know what, Nina, the, the overwhelming theme of my problem with the criminal justice system is a complete lack of funding. We are dealing with cases now where the volume of material in a modern world is just unrecognisable to that which the system was catering for. You know, in any given case, if someone's iPhone is relevant, let's say someone says, I wasn't at the scene of the burglary. I wasn't there. Well, their iPhone might tell you otherwise. Their iPhone might have drop-in points at a coffee shop nearby. It might have used the Wi-Fi on you know, a tube station on the way there. It might have cell site data where they're pinging off a 4G mast. It might have WhatsApp messages saying, I'll meet you at X place, and that might be relevant. It might have a screenshot of a train timetable. You know, the fact of the matter is that digital technology has transformed crime. It's transformed every area of, of life and criminals are not exempt from that. If anything, the contrary, often we see tech is used. When you have a system of policing and a system of courts and a system of payment for anyone involved in that, that isn't based on the huge volume of stuff that we're dealing with in every case, you know, avalanches of data, it's just not fit for, for purpose. Mm. And it's it's interesting that both our laws are trying to keep up. Um, you know, I know Nina, you, you, you've written about deep fakes and, you know, we see uh, crimes that the law isn't ready for you know we we see us scrambling to respond to people who send dick pics on the tube because the laws that we might have had to deal with conduct like that is is decades old and so we're really chasing our tail and I really hope that what what we need is an overhaul really um, to reflect the modern society of both the crimes we see but also the way old crimes are now committed Absolutely. And I know that we, you know, you and I have spoken about this offline and we're both really interested in how the digital technology of our era is completely transforming society and how society, the legal profession being one part of that is simply not prepared, is always 10 steps behind and reactive. What do you think needs to be done in terms of updating at least the legal profession or the 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 justice system to be better able to handle these type of challenges so as you say um we you and i both recognize that often laws in this this area are reactive and i think what they need to do is take a step back and, and in fact what a lot of the papers and a lot of the research is leaning towards is looking at common themes of these crimes because criminals will find a new way to sexually exploit women online 
They will find mm-hmm. a new way to commit fraud via Bitcoin or via some other currency online. So instead of trying to have specific laws that are knee-jerk reactions to the crime du jour of the day, if one can identify overarching themes and overarching conduct, for example, the non-consensual sharing of sexual images or the non-consensual adapting of sexual images, that would cover a crime that uh, might be committed in one way today, but it might be committed in another way tomorrow. A lot of the leanings towards a new set of laws in that area are recognising that and are recognising global elements of criminality rather than the nitty gritty of the technology of the day. So I hope that's where we end up. But we we certainly need to take a step back and recognise that, you know, the Internet is a whole new world. And the fact of the matter is that we're going to be dealing with traditional old crimes like people punching each other outside pubs. But we're also going to be dealing with an onslaught of Twitter crime, of Instagram crime, of, you know, online currency fraud. The constant reactive nature of it will just exhaust the system. Um, and so it really it really needs an overhaul. But they're certainly looking into online harms um, and in terms of uh, governance. So we can only hope. Well, I have no doubt that people like you, Joanna, will be increasingly important to navigate this new world of online crimes and harms. So I'm I'm happy you're where you are. Oh, Just putting well. a little bit of that responsibility on your shoulders. Um, but finally, more broadly, I'd like to get um, some thoughts on a topic that will be close to our listeners' hearts. And that is the kind of astounding UK government announcement that it wishes to break international law and mm. limited and specific ways. Where do you think this leaves the UK standing in the world? Yeah, it's... It, it's remarkable as a lawyer to even be dealing with questions like this. I mean, what we're seeing is a government who is gathering more power and resisting scrutiny. And as a lawyer, we see this rule of law debate um, about the internal market bill as just the final nail in the coffin almost, because we've seen, you know, we've got the Home Secretary tweeting out about activist lawyers who are just doing their job. We saw the Brexit judges on the front page of the newspaper as enemies of the people. And then finally, we see this sort of sense of patriotism bypassing obligations that we've signed up to in international law. And the argument seems to be either A, it's not unlawful, um, or B, it's a political question. But both of those miss the point entirely, which is your question, Nina, which is it damages us politically either way. It damages our country's standing, it damages our credibility when we criticise other nations for breaches of international law, and it damages this government internally. Uh, And so it's a troubling time. And the the theme of all of those things, of lawyers, judges uh, being criticised, of wide-reaching laws coming in, often at short notice with a lack of scrutiny, and now this uh, sense of wiggle room, almost, the mm-hmm. idea that we can wiggle around with our international obligations that we've signed up to. Um, it's almost as if the combination of coronavirus and Brexit, um, because it's the perfect storm, really, has just exposed the weakness of, of the governing system that we have. Um, it's a very interesting time to be a lawyer. Uh, it's not necessarily the best time to be a lawyer. Yeah, troubling. Is there any precedent for this? Why, why is the government using these tactics? The, I mean, ordinarily, a, uh, 
focusing on the coronavirus uh, secondary legislation, for example, ordinarily a crime would require an act of parliament, which would obviously be drafted, it would be scrutinised, it would, there would be debate. In fairness to the government, uh, the short notice uh, measures that, that came in in the way that they did were obviously originally a response to quite a fast-moving situation, and their argument will undoubtedly be that they have to respond at speed to the pace of global change in a pandemic. In terms of bypassing uh, international law, some have argued, and they've come up with little examples where we've technically breached it before. Um, I'm not really sure that's a good argument. You know, the the process of judicial review, which is where we hold governments to account uh, internally, uh, which the government find to be very inconvenient indeed when judges say that what they've done is actually illegal. Just because a government has been found in that system to breach a law doesn't mean that that's a good argument for breaching it again. I think what we really are seeing is a an executive um, that is just increasingly harnessing power, but simultaneously resisting scrutiny. So if you can imagine the two columns, one is going down and the other's going up. Um, and it remains to be seen uh, how the storm of Brexit and coronavirus will, will play out in relation to that. But it's a troubling time. Well, it sounds like the turmoil of 2020 is certainly making itself known in your profession as well. <laughs> and <laughs> Quickly, before we end, I just wanted to ask, if by some quirk of fate, uh, you found yourself Britain's criminal justice czar, which, by the way, I would be wholly in favour of, <laughs> what would you enact as a priority? What would I enact as a priority? I think that I would open up as many courts as we've closed. I think that I would say to the government and to the public that this matters, that when human beings are wronged, when someone's home is invaded and burgled, when somebody's body is sexually attacked, when someone's son is hurt because they've been violently assaulted, that that is a priority and that resolving the wrongs of citizens and the myriad of debates between them um, is something that is worth the money um, and that the constant briefing negatively about the criminal justice system has to stop and a more positive spin has to start, which is that we all live on this planet together. Uh, since time began, we're going to fall out with each other, we're going to injure each other, we're going to steal from each other and we're going to be wronged. And the first rule of government must be to A, keep order and to B, keep a sense of justice. And I think they've lost sight of that. Yeah. Well, Joanna, thanks for joining us. I feel as though we could talk for hours more. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Nina. And thank you for listening. There is a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday with the main panel podcast on Wednesdays. You can get each podcast early and without adverts, plus our stylish Bunker merchandise too when you back us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Nina Schick and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.